Soon after we arrived at this church, Beth and I visited in the home of an older couple who had visited what was definitely at that point a fledgling church. As we began to conclude our visit, the woman stood up, she walked across the living room and she placed in my hands a brochure. It was one of those thick, glossy, expensive brochures. Kind of looked down at it and had a picture of a red car on the front. And we kind of began to page through this brochure, not knowing what in the world was going on. And there were all the features of the car, this very fancy, expensive brochure. Now, this church has always taken very good care of us, but these were the very early days. And believe me, the car that we drove to that meeting needed replacing. And we were looking at this car and wondering what was going on. And the woman said, we are going to buy you that car. Uh, we insisted we didn't need a car, that the church needed the money more, and they assured us we're going to give money to the church as well, but we've given you this brochure because that's your car. And we were stunned and honestly a bit excited to have such a nice car. And I remember stepping out into the night air and saying to Beth, this is too good to be true. And it was too good to be true. We may never know, but all I can say is we never heard from that couple again. Still haven't. We're still waiting. <laughs> For reasons we may never know, their promise was not kept. Now, in God's grace, we handled the disappointment well, particularly because although we had no reason to believe the promise would be broken, we never set our hearts on the fact that it would be kept. God just kept us from that, I guess. And I think that's always the better part of wisdom in such situations, isn't it? Because we live in that kind of world. We live as human beings not very long to recognize that promises are routinely broken. Human beings have a far from perfect record when it comes to keeping promises. Sometimes people fully intend to keep a promise. They really do, but unforeseen circumstances arise and they just can't follow through. Sometimes it becomes obvious that it would be immoral to keep a promise and so it is broken. Just lack of foresight, lack of foreknowledge. Sometimes a lack of integrity and character leads promise keepers to change their minds. And other times a promise is nothing but a deceptive lie from the very start. In a fallen and imperfect world, we grow rather accustomed to promise breaking. What is tragic is that we seem then naturally bent to possess the same measured caution when it comes to God. In the very first book of the Bible, we learn repeatedly that God is a promise-making God. We also learn in this book that He is a promise-keeping God. God makes promises and God keeps His promises. What is more, it is our calling as His people to live by faith in those promises. This is our calling. This is who we are as a people. 
We are to be energized by the confident assurance that God's promises will be fully realized. This is a fundamental truth that God labors to impress upon us in the first book of Scripture. And it is a truth then that we must grasp. We look at Genesis chapter 12 again today as we're working our way into a series through the book of Exodus We look a couple more weeks here in preparation for that series to remember the message of Genesis. And we come to Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. As we noted last week, God says to Abram in Genesis 12 and verse 1, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. These verses record God's initial promise to make the offspring of Abram into a great nation through whom all nations of the earth would be blessed. Now, for this to be realized, a people like this need a land. To become a nation, you have to have a land. And after Abram obeys God's call and enters the land of Canaan, we note in verse 7, the latter part of the verse, that God says to Abram, to your offspring, I will give this land. So there is his promise. Nations will come from you. You will be a blessing to all other nations, and I will give you this land of Canaan. This is a glorious promise. Israel was a productive and beautiful land. This was also a mind-boggling promise, for this land was occupied by Canaanite kings who ruled walled cities, and Abram was a nomadic shepherd. To reassure Abram, God continues through the book of Genesis to reiterate this promise. This land, a people, I mean it. It's my word. Genesis chapter 15 Abram is confused at this point in time. God has promised this great nation, yet Abram and his wife are very old and they have no children. And Abram speaks to God in verse 3, and God replies, Abram said, verse 3, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. This Eliezer of Damascus Abram speaks to God, and God does not shy away from his promise. He doesn't say, you know, Abram, I've been thinking. We really do have a problem here, don't we? You and Sarah are really old, and, you know, maybe there's another way around this thing, because we're kind of in trouble here. I've been thinking about this very thing. That's not what God says, is it? Verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir. But a son coming from your own body will be your heir. God has made a promise, but circumstances seem to have eliminated the possibility that this promise will be fulfilled. And so Abram steps forward to bail God out, is what he's doing here. You know, God, I've got this Eliezer of Damascus. This one, he's going to inherit my estate. Maybe he should inherit the promise as well. Right? Wouldn't that work? God says, wrong. I have another plan. My promise will be fulfilled through a child born of your seed. And to stress the point further, Abram, 
let's step outside. Verse 5, he took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. God insists that this promise will prevail. He uses an object lesson to stress the point. And we note that Abram, verse 6, believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram trusted that God would keep his promise and Abram's faith in God's word was credited as righteousness. As we consider what is taking place here between God and Abram, we know that it is written for our edification. And in Abram's ordeal, we are taught that although the promises of God may be hidden for a time behind the dark clouds of circumstance, those clouds will pass. God will always keep every one of his promises. And we must walk by faith, trusting God's word to the very end. He will deliver. But let us not imagine that the promises of God are realized without suffering and trial. Verse 12 of this same chapter, As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. This darkness anesthetizes Abram. He receives a dream vision from God. Note that. Just keep that lodged in the back of your mind. There is this dream vision to declare the promise to Abram. And in this dream, God addresses the second aspect of his promise, namely the land. Verse 13, Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for hundred years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Now, frankly, you don't guess at 400 years, do you? You can guess who's going to win a ball game. You can guess what the weather's going to be like the next day. And you might even take a stab in the dark a few days down the way. But you don't guess at 400 years. The promise of God... Every promise of God is never an educated guess. When God makes a promise, it is His Word. They're not subject to uncontrollable circumstances, these promises. 400 years, who could say that America will be around in 400 years? If this world goes on as is that long, which is hard to imagine, but if it does, I would be raising my hand and saying, America will not be here in 400 years. What is there to guarantee that Israel will even survive? But God says, 400 years in slavery. God keeps His promises because God steers the course of history. He knows what is ahead. And the sovereign God informs Abram here that there will be some tough days ahead for his people. Verse 15, you, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. On the narrow scale, God foreknows the days of Abram's life. He knows where he's going to die and when. And on the broader scale, he foreknows the history of Israel. 
So as verse 16 says, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here to this promised land, for the sins of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. What's God saying? This 400-year period is no arbitrary length of time. God knows in his wisdom that it will take this long, precisely this length of time, for the Canaanite culture to reach a state of total moral corruption. When that happens, says God, I will bring your offspring out of slavery. You will plunder the people who have held you captive and you will come back to this place 400 years. And in verse 17, God formally ratifies his covenant with Abram. God stresses that he will deliver on his promise. He showed him the stars, and now verse 17, when the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. That is, these carcasses of animal. It was a means of, of ratifying a covenant. In other words, God says, you're never going to forget this, Abram. I will deliver. Your people will come back here to this land. And on that day, verse 18, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land. And he notes the boundaries and the people who now live there. God is orchestrating the future. He knows what will happen. And he reveals to Abram that his promise will be kept. Now in chapter 17, God repeats again his promise to give Abram a son and, and this land. And to mark the occasion, God renames Abram Abraham and he establishes circumcision as a sign of the covenant between God and Abram's offspring. We go to chapter 21, chapter 21, where we read that, in fact, Abram does father a son. Genesis 21, now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him, and when his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abram was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. The rite of circumcision marks Isaac as the inheritor of God's promise to bless the world through Abraham. And it is no accident then that God appears not only to Abraham but to Isaac to confirm his promise to Abraham's son, chapter 26. So as he has appeared to the father, so he appears to the chosen son, Genesis 26 and verse 3. Speaking to Isaac, God says, stay in this land for a while and I will be with you and I will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and will give them all these lands and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commandments, my decrees, and my laws. Now any child reading through the book of Genesis can see the connection between these two. He says to Abraham, I will make you a numerous people. And he says the very same thing to Isaac, appearing to him. 
Abraham's obedience to God's call issues forth in the blessing upon his son. And God's promise is passed on to Isaac's son, Jacob. Jacob by no means earns God's favor, does he? We know the story, but while Jacob runs away from the murderous intent of his twin brother Esau, and while he runs away from God himself, God graciously appears to Jacob in a dream. Abraham, the promise. Isaac, the promise. And now his son, Jacob, the promise. Chapter 28. Genesis 28 and verse 10. Genesis 28 and verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream. Remember that thought lodged in your head? Here's another dream, another appearance, another message. He had a dream, no mistake in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Jacob is highly impressed with this revelation of God, and he names the place Bethel, a combination of the words house and God. This is the house of God, and he makes a vow here, verse 20. Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Now let me say, that's not exactly what you call robust faith, is it? Jacob is saying, I want material things, I want provision, I want to be protected, I just want the basics here, God, and if you deliver, then I will worship you. This isn't robust faith at all. But Jacob is beginning to show signs of spiritual life. He begins to listen to the word of God. The promises have been there. They've been passed through Isaac, and he's stolen the birthright. He knows the promises are there. But now God's got his attention, and he's beginning to listen to God's word. That's a crucial point. This this is the central issue for each of these patriarchs. God speaks. He issues promises. And it is to the people to whom he issues these promises their responsibility to trust and to walk in obedience to that word. And I don't know to whom I speak entirely here this morning, but if you are not sure that you are born again, if you're not sure that you have come to trust Jesus 
for salvation. Please understand that the issue is faith in God's Word. It's not ultimately just about what you know. It's not ultimately about the church in which you find yourself or the family in which you find yourself. It's about the Word of God. You must begin by trusting what God has said. There is no other approach. Salvation is not going to come to you by some great experience in itself. God will not reveal himself in the sky in all of his splendor and glory to you. You're not going to get zapped with some wand. God speaks, and we need to listen. That's where it starts. Now, through a long series of events, God indeed does bring Jacob right back here to Canaan safely, as he said he would. And Jacob returns sometime later with 11 sons. A 12th is born soon thereafter. And with these 12 sons, the lineage through which God's promise to Abraham is realized fans out to each of the 12 sons of Jacob. And they form Israel's 12 tribes. So it's Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob, and to all 12 of his sons. This promise is passed. Jacob's 11th son, you remember, Joseph becomes the linchpin in the prophecy that Abraham's offspring will soon depart from this land. Joseph is sold by his brothers to Midianite merchants who journey to Egypt and sell Joseph to a high official in Pharaoh's court. And through a series of sweet and bitter providences, Joseph rises to rule Egypt for Pharaoh. When a famine hits the region, Jacob sends Joseph's brothers to Egypt to buy grain, and eventually Joseph is reconciled to his brothers and convinces his father Jacob to join him in Egypt. God's plan is working itself out. We come to chapter 46. Genesis chapter 46. Genesis chapter 46. No mistake, another vision. So Israel set out with all that was his, Israel, that is Jacob, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. He's about to leave the land, the promised land. And he worships. In verse 2, God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Egypt was a segregationist society. Canaan was an integrationist society. The Canaanites welcomed you in. Come in among us. Worship our gods. Marry our children, join our clans. That was Canaan. Egypt, they had a whole different thing going on there. We are the superior race. 
We are the ultimate people. Nobody matches up to us Egyptians. You come into our land, we may let you in, but if you come in, you're your own people. You're isolated to your own. Is God making a mistake? Does God know what he's doing? He preserves the uniqueness of the Israelites. He preserves their identity in Egypt through 400 years of existence there. In Egypt, Israel will be segregated and will grow into a great nation. But, says God, I will bring you back. Verse 5, Then Jacob left Beersheba, and Israel's sons took his, their father Jacob and their children and their wives in the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. They also took with them their livestock, the possessions that they had acquired in Canaan. And Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt. You know what? God doesn't say anything for 400 years. Nothing recorded in scripture, in written text, for the next 400 years. Now he does an awful lot to stress to Abraham his promise of a land and a people. And he stresses it over and again to Isaac and to Jacob. But now the promises have been made and God is no one's servant to be told how often he needs to repeat the promises. If he said it once, it's going to happen you can take it to the bank. This will be your land. You will come back. 400 years of nothing. Now, Jacob could have been buried in Egypt with great honor. But we notice in chapter 47 that he chooses otherwise to express his faith. Genesis 47 and verse 28, Genesis 47 and verse 28, Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. This is the way that they would make an agreement. It was basically uh, an identification with the people uh, of Israel. This symbol of putting his hand under his thigh. And he said this, Swear to me, do not bury me in Egypt. Remember who Joseph is. He can have his father buried in a very prominent tomb and we know a little bit about the tombs of Egypt don't bury me here this is not my place but verse 30 when I rest with my fathers carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried the people of Israel will be 400 years in Egypt but Jacob says, my place is in Palestine. It is Canaan. It is the promised land. Bury me there. Canaan is my home, not Egypt. And it's no accident 
that the book of Genesis closes with a strong testimony of faith in the promise of God. A testimony of faith on the part of Jacob, and now a testimony of faith on the part of Joseph. Chapter 50 of Genesis. Genesis chapter 50. This book ends on a glorious note. I mean, if we get it, if we see it, it's like there's fireworks that are going off at the end lighting up the glories of the promise of God and the faith of the patriarchs. Genesis chapter 50 and verse 14. Genesis 50 and verse 14. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. They followed through on his request. He is buried in the promised land. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph's brothers fully intended to harm him. In fact, they did harm him. But God is the primary cause behind every secondary cause. Joseph's brothers freely and willingly harmed Joseph, but they were the secondary cause. They were responsible for their crime, but they were the secondary cause. As the primary cause, God uses evil choices of Joseph's brothers to transfer Israel from Canaan to Egypt. Joseph's brothers were driven by jealous anger. When they sold their brother into slavery, they were not driven by a sense of prophetic fulfillment. Uh, you know, God's got to get us down there into slavery for 400 years, so let's get our brother to start the process. That's not what they're thinking. They are blinded by their anger at this young man. They hate him. I mean, they're, they're talking about slavery, murder, slavery, murder. That's all they care about with this kid. Get him out of our face. But in all of that evil, God works his plan 400 years. And we need to realize, as we consider this truth, that the evil plans and actions of people can never stymie the promises of God. Christian, do you really believe that truth? Do you believe it? The evil actions of other people can never cancel the promises of God. In fact, those evil plans and actions are crucial to the fulfillment of God's sovereign purposes. How can we claim that God always keeps his promises? You know how we can claim that? Because God rules the universe with absolute authority. If he didn't, then there is no guarantee that any one of his promises will ever come true. But he does rule with sovereign authority. And so verse 21, then 
Don't be afraid, says Joseph. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children and also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. These are his two sons. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. Now notice where this ends. But God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Not a pyramid. Not a great crypt to send out the message of Joseph's greatness, which was indeed great. He was buried in a coffin. A transportable box that would get his bones back to Canaan. Now we need to understand, as we read the book of Genesis, that it was not written to merely satisfy historical curiosity. There's an awful lot of historical curiosity here that is satisfied. We find in the table of nations where the peoples of the earth have come from, we find uh, the history of the nation of Israel. I've told the story often, but when I was studying at the university, a, a professor teaching us the history of Israel stood before us and gave this long lecture about how the Bible he brought to class that day wasn't his. He was very embarrassed by the fact that he had to bring a Bible. But do you know that the, that the history of Israel is found in one book? It's Scripture. That's not an accident. And even an apologetic, unbelieving professor has to say, it's the Bible that tells us about Israel's history. There's much here that is very intriguing. But followers of Christ... We've got to understand that the book of Genesis was not written to satisfy our curiosity. It was written that we would know who God is and that it would change us. In the journeys of these far from perfect patriarchs of Israel, one lesson stands forth in bold emphasis. God is a promise-keeping God. He never lies he never deceives, he never reneges, he never falls short or proves weak, and he is never thwarted by circumstances. Do we even dare say it? God certainly never lies. He tells the truth. And as the sovereign ruler over all things, God can keep his promises. And so there is in all of this a warning for us. If you do not know Christ as your Savior, you could not stand before this congregation and say, here is how I know that I am on my way to heaven and that my sins have been paid. If you do not know Christ in that way, there are promises from God that are very, very concerning. He says in Revelation 20 and verse 8 that the cowardly and the unbelieving and the vile and murderers and sexually immoral and those who practice magic arts and idolaters and all liars 
shall have their place in the fiery lake of burning sulfur, which is the second death. Of the eternal city, God says, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's God's word. In the book of Hebrews, he says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. But in his grace and in his mercy, he also says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And to those of us who are believers, God's promises then not only bring us into the family of God as we trust his word to grant us saving grace and deliver us from his wrath and hell. But as believers, God gives to us great and precious promises. The God who said, I will give you a land, the God who said, I will make you a great people, is the same God who issues promises to you and to me as his people over and over again in his word. Nothing will separate you from the love of God Not death itself, not demonic opposition, not poverty, not fear, not other people. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. And in that text, as he starts that whole section, he says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. All things. You see, we can look back on Abraham and say, well, I've, I've got the perspective here. He shouldn't sweat the fact that he doesn't have a son because Isaac's coming along. And he shouldn't sweat the fact that he's got this Isaac laid out on an altar about to kill him at the command of God because God's going to stop him and bring a ram. You know, we don't have that perspective when it comes to our problems, do we? And to the challenges that God sends into our life. But God's word is the same I will never leave you or forsake you, Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. And as Matthew 28 says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. I will be with you to the end of the age. God will never abandon his people. We cannot be removed from his love. All things are working together for the good of those who love God. This same God promises His provision. God will supply all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4.19. And circumstances can cloud that. But God's Word is solid. We can trust it. God's Word promises that Jesus Christ will return to this earth that he will receive his own. There is a promise there that in the future, in your future and mine, how we need to be concentrating is on this return of Jesus Christ. We need to be living as if that were in fact the coming truth because it is. The God who told Abraham that your people will return to Canaan is the same God who is saying, my son will return to this earth. And he will receive his own. And we need to live in light of that promise. And then as we go from there, we have the promise of God that in in the Father's house are many rooms. 
and that Christ goes to prepare a place for us, that he may receive us unto himself. You comb through this word, there is promise after promise after promise, and God never fails his word. As he did with Abraham, God repeats these promises to us. And Christian, we must say, let's be honest and look in the mirror. If we are walking in the joy that God, if we are not walking in the joy that God is working all things together for good, if we are not walking in the joy of his promise, if we're not actively trusting that our suffering is not to be compared with the glory that will be revealed, if we are, not, if we are doubting God's provision and protection, if we are not living in anticipation of Jesus' return, then we are not living by faith in the promises of God. We're living focused on other things. And we're despising the word of God. And if that's the case, then we are probably very, very familiar with fear and with worry and with discouragement and with unproductive spiritual involvement in the lives of others. It's time to step outside. It's time to look up at the stars of heaven And to say as we look at those stars, thus are the numbers of the promises of God to us in Jesus Christ. And to know that every one of those promises will be kept to the very end. It's time for us to live by faith in the promises of God. Let's ask for his help in prayer. Our Father, we need you. It's pretty easy for us to be critical of the patriarchs and of their failings and their lack of faith. Lord, we sense as we look at our own lives that we really struggle in the faith ourselves. And I pray for those, God, who are right now laboring with circumstances that seem to cloud the vision of God's promises. Those who are saying, there's no way that God never leaves us. There's no way that this is working out together for good. And those who have lost sight of the return of Christ and of the glories of heaven, I pray, God, that you would renew their strength. I pray that you'd renew their sense of faith I ask that you'd reorient their direction and help them to trust in your word and your promises. God, if there's someone here who is bound by sin and blinded by the things of this world, I pray, God, that you would teach them your word of promise that in Jesus are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, that in Jesus Christ is a satisfaction that once tasted will satisfy spiritual thirst forever and ever and ever. And for anyone who has not had the taste of that water of life, I pray, God, that they would cling to that promise. That the clouds of sensuality and self-centeredness and depravity and sin 
would be blown away and that they would see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and that they would drink deeply of Him today. We pray this together as a congregation. We pray that you would open eyes. May we all who leave here cling to the promises of the living God and never allow our faith to falter. It will, on narrow terms and in small ways, and sometimes perhaps we will push into bigger and larger areas of disobedience. But God, preserve your people, I pray. Keep us from sin. Keep us from doubt. Keep us from a lack of faith. Keep us from listening to the words of this world and of Satan to find pleasure in places other than you. And may we walk by faith. May you preserve us in it. That we would never doubt your word, but live by faith in it. This is our prayer. We need the grace of God. We plead for it. We lift up our cups. And we ask that you'd fill them. To the glory of our Savior we pray. Amen.